Welcome listeners to episode 23 of the Running Guy podcast, where I aim to provide informative content and interviews with elite athletes from around the world, like in today's episode, where I'm chatting to a guy who has endured through physical and mental struggles on race day a multitude of times, and has always come out the other side a more complete human being and runner. I've really been looking forward to this conversation as we delve into ultramarathon running in its purest form, from the physical, mental and spiritual energy that exists within and around us. My guest has a PhD in physiology and pharmacology, was awarded Australian Ultra Runner of the Year in 2008 and 2009, has been labelled a godfather of ultra running in Australia that I know will probably make him feel uncomfortable <laughs> due to his humbleness. Welcome to the Running Guy podcast, Dr. Martin Fryer. Oh, thank you, Aston. That's that's some introduction. I'll I'll take it humbly. Thank you. Oh, I look really, really, like I said, looking forward to this, mate. I'm just excited to see where we can go with this. Um, but we'll start off with this uh, a great announcement uh, from the Blue Mountains last week. Uh, an ultra that you've certainly uh, had a lot to do with. You uh, you ran in the early years of it. Um, uh, that's yes. returning in December this year. The Coast of Cozzy. That's got to be good news, eh? Oh, look, seriously, um, looking at. Facebook and yeah, I was involved with it. I ran it in the second year that it was on when I think there are only seven of us. So I have a permanent number. I'm not sure I can get back and do it again. Um, but look, I just know there's so many people that being part of C2K is, is part of things that change their life. And it's just this big family and it, it's just this big hairy audacious goal to you know run from the coast to the to the top of cozy and back to charlotte's pass and and the amount of interaction between the runners and the crews um just the logistics the organization you know anyone that's been involved with it 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 changes them forever and anyone that's met other people in the race, you know, they've become lifelong friends. So I, I, I just looked at the reactions on Facebook this week and I've already received um, a few <laughs> a few requests for coaching people <laughs> to get up there uh, sure. in, in December. Yeah, it's yeah. just, it's really something special. But yeah, I did it twice. Um, I, I won it in 2005 and then I came back 2007 and raced against Timmy Cochran and uh, came second. And I think I did about 28 and a half hours. But as the years went on, that race has become, you know, more and more, well, it did until it disappeared. It was people were getting very organised and the times went faster and faster, even under 24 hours. So, yeah, it's, mm. it's, it's an amazing thing. And I think it's like with all the COVID stuff going on, it's, it's really just pumped people up again. It's just like giving them hope. So it's a great announcement. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. I, I see there, I think they haven't cracked 24 yet. Andrew Tucky. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, 2433 in 2014, but that's up um, 24 hours, a big carrot for, uh, for yeah, future absolutely. competitors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They hope, you know, we'll get um, a local or even bring in an import and see if <laughs> we can bust it. It's just like the four-minute mile now. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you you did it in in oh five, like I said, the second year and the first year. Um, Paul Avery, Nat, he's, he's he was a race director. Did he actually come up with the whole idea? Was it all yes, his brainchild? Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah it, was, it was certainly nothing to do with me. There was yeah. um, I remember there's Paul Avery, Sean Greenhill and uh, a couple of others, but mainly Paul mm. and Sean mm. came up with the idea over some beers, probably at the rocks, mm. and mm. then went, and the first year was really just to, you know, doing it absolutely 
sort of old school style with I think Sean had his mum crew for him <laughs> and they I think he he took oh some unbelievable he took a couple of days and and there was a famous famous phone call from the from the summit to Paul when Paul had left the race he'd finished and was doing a I think a triathlon the next day which is yeah. something of legends yeah and, yeah and, uh, yeah Sean said oh, I'm at the summit <laughs> like at 40 46 hours or something ridiculous so yeah yeah, yeah, yeah it's the stuff of legends but those guys came up with it and then the difficulty of course is you know now uh, there's more and more you know barriers to trying to put a race on and mm. they, they go across so many different councils and trying to get um, approvals and things has become harder and harder and there's you know obviously the road plan and um, certainly the the last, I, aside from doing it myself, I actually paced three of the people I coach in different years. So I think I, I ran from Dalgetty to Charlotte's with Kerry Bremner and then with Maddie Eckford and then with Nicole Barker um, in other years. And, mm. you know, the race was getting, I mean, more and more organised. You had to have flashing lights on your car. Everyone had to have fluoro vests. Um, there was very clear rules and people you know stuck to them but mm. despite that um i think you know it was probably a combination of getting some succession planning from paul and Di, who had done it for many years and it really took a lot out of them mm. and um you know just the bureaucracy of trying to get all the approvals yeah there was certainly some uh, some disappointment uh, a couple of years ago when uh yeah that was sort of forced to uh bring it to an end but just to get the overseas listeners up to scratch i'll just give them the, uh, the rundown of it. it's 240 kilometers uh starting in uh down on the coast there twofold bay in eden and running um up to the highest point in australia the summit of mount kosciuszko which sits at uh, 2228 meters which is 7300 feet so yeah 150 miles 240 k's all on roads sealed unsealed um, pretty much fastest man wins all the way to the top there and uh yeah running running with a crew obviously um something you certainly need but i um, mean there'd be so many so many stories uh from competitors who have done that um i'd love to uh love to sort of get through them over time um yes but well go- i can tell you i can tell you that you know at the end of all those races whether i was a competitor or crew um yeah the, on the the Sunday morning, Paul would have this very long award ceremony, and it really was probably one of the most amazing experiences of your career because, you know, he he loved the race so much from his heart, and he knew everyone's story. And mm. and mm. before he'd give out awards, you know, he'd just tell a story about every person. And, and you know, I remember yeah. sitting there and just having tears in my eyes. It was okay. just, yeah, yeah, really something. Yeah, yes, yeah, it's, it's it's fifty uh, selected 50, 50 runners as well by invitation. Um, so um, yeah, I remember I remember I was I was I grew up in Sydney and I was involved in triathlons in the early days. And I remember someone pointing out this long-haired bloke that had ridden up from Canberra you know, <laughs> yes. overnight to do the seven a.m. triathlon. He was going to do the triathlon. It was Olympic distance back in those days, one forty ten, and get back on his bike and ride back to Canberra. And, and um, <laughs> 
Yeah, I just thought that that's that's nuts. And then, uh, yeah, years later, I, I was looking at the coast of Cozzy and I saw some pictures of, of the race director. And I went, "That's that bloke that used to ride the Sydney." <laughs> so yeah. I wasn't wasn't surprised that someone like Paul came up with that crazy uh, crazy race. But um, yeah, fantastic news is back on. That's for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Any idea, actually, before we finish up on that, what the total elevation is that you run during that event? Oh, oh that, no, that one's no. got me. I, yeah. I don't actually know. Yeah. It's, I'm normally meters. pretty good with numbers, but, yeah, yeah, I'd say it's yeah probably – it'd have to be one to 2,000 in there total. Yeah, Because yeah. oh, even, sure. even, even when you're up on the Monaro Plains, it's still rolling. You know, yeah. there's rolling hills there for long periods. Yeah, and you yeah, go, yeah. Yes. Yeah, well, we're still going to run – run pun intended through, through your career so let's i might actually just talk about let's just quickly talk about that race that, that you won um let's talk about some of the experiences that you got out of that what, what was the worst thing that happened and were, were the things that had sort of uh that happened that you just did not expect um i uh, see so you're talking about coaster cozy yeah, or yeah, yeah. Other let, let's races talk, no no let, let's just talk about oh five cozy when, when you when you took that oh. Boy. Well, that one, I mean, that was weird because there were so few competitors. It really was yeah. like, yeah. you know, a bunch of punters getting out and having a bit of an adventure. Um, but I do remember that that year I, um, in the early parts going through the Toowoomba Valley, actually um, pushing hard against Paul, of all people. Yeah. So there's actually some old photos in that that show us, you know, pumping along the dirt roads through the Toowoomba Valley. Um, look, it, it, it all seemed to be pretty good um was that the furthest you'd run at at that stage of your career ah gee um so what was that 2005 actually uh, yes it was um no i think i'd done a 48 hour i can't even remember now mm-hmm. possibly yeah, i think i may have done a 48 hour of, um so i ha- i certainly had been out with without sleep you yeah. know in events for a while so mm-hmm. and that is that is an element that some people have trouble dealing with mm-hmm. but I, I remember i mean both of those years that i did it um you know the first part you, you're full of excitement um your crew's working well i only had um the first year i only had one friend of mine ian wright who was a bushwalking friend and he i mean unlike the crewing that was done in later years you know he'd just drive a few hours ahead and I'd just have enough on me to get through, you know, until I saw him again and he might take a nap. Whereas, you know, the modern crewing when Coast to Cozy dissolved was like, you know, the Tour de France, you know, there were people with two crews and everything was, you know, specialist and they had pacing plans and everything. But that, yeah, the first year was really just, you know, go as you please and have have a bit of fun. But uh, I think for a lot of people, you know, there's a turning point generally most people that are do distance running and have done some longer runs can get through about 12 to 16 hours and then it starts to get interesting um so then um you know you're getting you're feeling fatigued often your stomach is not very settled and and you're needing to keep getting fuel in and so you know the job of your crew is to somehow tempt you into having food um sort of to get energy without throwing it up <laughs> mm, mm. and also just going into the darkness so i can't remember the first year but certainly i, I think i got you know got through dalgetty uh near about dark and then you you go up onto the range and um 
Yeah, so so through that night time, uh, it's just a period of you know being isolated on the side of the road and finding finding a place, I guess, um, somehow to dissolve the pain and fatigue that you're feeling. Um, and you know, it, it's basically it's peaks and troughs that go mm. on um, forever and ever. Uh, and then I guess when you when you get a, a hint of the goal you're getting up towards charlotte's you go through perisher then the you sort of get some extra energy just from the sheer excitement that you know you know the goal is there mm. and as, as tired as you are you know you're able to sort of access i guess you know some adrenaline and you know i think that's that's the time when you really do need to think about you know why you're doing it and people think of their family and friends or whatever things that push them further Mm. And um, it can be a quite emotional, you know, um, getting to Charlotte's and then heading up and then actually reaching the summit and everyone's joyous. But the, the race organisers have, have purposefully organised it that it doesn't finish there because often, you know, people get to finish lines and they collapse. Mm. Mm. You can't collapse up at, the, up at the summit. So you've got to sort of hold something in reserve to to get back down Um uh, back to Charlotte's and it's even worse if if you're racing uh, in the race and you actually can see people because it's an up and back you can see how far away your competitors are and so there's been many amazing stories of people that have done a big push and passed people on the way back down from the summit you know to to pick up another position yeah sure now I haven't done the maths on the daylight but uh, were you coming down there in the in the daylight or nighttime? Uh, so, gee, the, so the first year I did it, I think Paul had done it in about thirty nine, and I did it in thirty three something. Um, and so I was, yeah, it was daylight again. Mm. Um, I think so. I have to do the maths. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we were certainly going up, up and down in in daylight. But you know, the people at the tail end of the field, yeah, it's tough for them because they're into their second night. <laughs> yeah, 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 and yeah. I think the cutoff is like three thirty in the morning, and like, you know, for some of them, you know, you know, the conditions can change so radically up there, and yeah, and it's been yeah. people up there in just horrendous, you know, nighttime <laughs> conditions. Yeah, yeah, so you can imagine what they're going through. I, I think for myself, I made a resolve that if I couldn't sort of finish in in daylight on the saturday then you know i'd probably just drop <laughs> yeah 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 so it was yeah. sort of one of my motivations is if you know if i can't bloody yeah. shit through and get there i really don't want to be out there being miserable on saturday night <laughs> sure yeah I, I was just looking uh yeah so so you took 31 hours and 55 minutes so let's say roughly you would have been finishing oh, about, 31 that's right yeah, yeah it would have I been came, about two o'clock in the afternoon if you were starting yeah, about five correct. or six in the morning yeah. yeah and then i came back 2007 and was a bit better prepared and yeah. um timmy cochran 28 and a half that's yeah fast. timmy cochran came along and um yeah, yeah, it was funny yeah. that year because he actually decided to take a bit of a sleep near threadbow river and his crew saw our car my crew car coming and woke him up and he ran scared to the end and I think he almost put 45 minutes on me and I was trying to chase him but I was pretty stuffed <laughs> yeah okay <laughs> but it was good yeah. yeah it would have made it a little bit more interesting something else to think about turned yeah. into a race yeah for yeah sure. if, you, if you can race going yeah, you know, yeah you know, sure. it's all uphill there from Threadbow yeah. River so yeah 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 
All right, let's go back. When when did you sort of uh, find your way into like endurance running, and were you sort of involved in any other sports before um, that? Yeah, I mean, running in general. I've, um, I guess you know, I owe it to my dad, um, who unfortunately passed away this year. Um, but he he used to take myself and my sister. We lived in in Randwick uh, and Coogee in the in Sydney. And um, he used to take us for a run, sort of one and a half K to the beach, go for a body surf, run home. And, and that really set me up with the idea that, you know, exercise and running and stuff was fun. And then I guess I ran a little bit in high school, but nothing longer than about city to surf. You know, I tried to do school athletics, but I always kept getting beaten in 800s and stuff because I had no speed. Um, and then city to surf, suddenly I started getting into my element. So I, then I knew I was a real slow twitcher and I was beating people, you know, that were many years ahead of me. Um, and then that sort of disappeared. I, I did university, did my PhD and did postdoc studies. And, and while I was um, in America in what about, it was about 89, 90, um, I started uh, running with the Hash House Harriers there in the Bay Area. So that was sort of like running and drinking beer. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I've discovered there were these amazing trail races in the Marin County there along fantastic trails of Mount Tamalpais and stuff in the Bay Area. And so I started doing like, you know, 15K trail races, 20Ks, and then uh, got in with a group that were sort of training for marathons and stuff. So I did actually did my first marathon in in Sacramento in uh, 90, 91. Yeah, 91. Um, but I hadn't really thought of ultras then. Um, mm. The funny thing, the funny story back then is I was doing a training run with some people around Mount Tam and we ran into all these, these old crusty guys and we had done a 30K run and we thought we were pretty cool. And these guys were doing like an 80K training run and they were training for Western States, which I hadn't even heard of then. So the great irony is I I left there thinking these guys are absolute nuts. And, you know, in 2007, I went back and I raced Western (laughs) States myself. So... You know, be be careful what you how you judge people. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I definitely want to get to get to Western States. Uh, yeah, I sort of have a lot of interest in that one. Um, yeah, you mentioned you you moved over to uh, study there in Berkeley, California. So, what what was the reason for going to the states to study? Um, yeah, so I did my PhD in basically skeletal muscle physiology and looking at um, differences in fast and slow twitch fibers, and mm. then. Uh, I, I was measuring calcium changes because calcium is what controls muscle contraction when it gets released in the muscle cells. So then I was still interested in calcium, but I went to work with um, in a really high-powered lab looking at calcium but how it controls nerve function um, at University of California, Berkeley. So I was looking at how calcium actually controls the excitability of neurons in your brain. Uh, and I, I'd got that. I was fortunate enough to get a, a very generous scholarship from the government, from the um, NHMRC, that's National Health and Medical Research Council, and that um, basically gave you two years paid overseas to get experience, and then 
paid for you two years back in Australia um, to bring those techniques back to Australia to help boost Australian science. So that's how I ended up there. Um, okay. Just while I was there, since being in the Bay Area and having places like Yosemite and Tahoe and, you know, uh, Monterey and the coast, um, it was just a great place as a centre of going on adventures as well. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And um, just to to further on with your with your career, then you sort of spent a large chunk of that working um, as a toxicologist, yeah, at the uh, Therapeutic Goods Administration. That would yes. have been here here in Canberra, I assume. Yes, that's yeah. right. So actually, in so between, what's that all about? Well, actually, you, yeah, you missed a little bit in between. So I came mm. I came back here, and I had a few years in Melbourne. Mm. Uh, again, going back to looking at um, muscle fatigue, and probably probably my best scientific paper that's had the most attention came out then. Uh, that was around ninety two or so. And then I, I actually got a lectureship up at Union New South Wales back in Sydney, and that's where I'd done my PhD. And I worked from 94 till nine, end of 98 uh, as a lecturer there. I ran a course in, um, well, I did a lot of teaching of uh, pharmacology, you know, the study of drugs to... Um, to medicine and science students and, and optometrists. Uh, and I also ran a master's course in biopharmaceuticals, which was a, a sort of the beginning of when the biotech revolution was starting. And I had to, we had to train people that knew about drug development, but also knew about biotechnology and how people put together recombinant products. And then I, I pretty much reached a point there where I, I felt I needed something different and I saw a job down here at TGA, Therapeutic Goods, um, and that was as a toxicologist. So this job is, um, you know, TGA is the the medicines regulator and we're in the prescription medicines branch and we, we see all the data that comes in to support a new medicine about to go on the market and we scientifically look at all the data. So look, there can be 20, 50,000 pages of data. And in the toxicology, we, you know, we look at stuff like how does the drug work? Um, what organ systems does, um, um, are there toxicities in when you really push the dose too high? Uh, can it, can it cause uh, tumours? Does it have potential for causing birth defects? So it's it's a very full-on mental job, mm. um, but it's a really wonderful job. At the moment, I'm actually on leave, um, just taking a few months long service leave and wanting to reset some of my coaching and timing and try and get my own body back in shape a bit. Um, but look, it's it's a it's a it's a wonderful job, and I've been you know very lucky to be be part of that organisation because, you know, the people there are very altruistic and we, we really want to just do the right thing for for public health. Yeah, sure. And you think sort of having that uh, that wide range of sort of um, knowledge on, on how the body sort of absorbs and responds, you know, more under load at, at, at a, I guess, at a cellular level sort of, yes. you know, and, yeah. and the muscles and that, is that, that sort of helped you sort of... Uh, understand how to train yourself as an athlete yeah look i think it does and i think this look there's so much now out on the internet that 
anyone can probably get access to any information they want on that stuff. But I think that's where the problem lies, you know, yourself mm. as a coach, is people, you can find a lot of conflicting information and this is the problem of the internet, like what is real and what isn't. And there's clearly times where there's seem to be conflicts in the information that's out there. So yeah. I think at least my job is to is to be very do critical analysis. So at least for myself, you know, I can look at some stuff on the web and say that's just complete crap, you know, or that's marketing or that's X, Y, Z. But look, you know, beyond all that, you know, despite everything we know in the science, you know, you know, as well as I do, every person's an experimenter one and essentially as a coach, your job is to give people the boundaries of how to experiment on themselves and understand mm. what works and what doesn't it's not about telling them what to do it's like mm. look you've got mm. this amazing body you've been blessed you know with with these wonderful traits so why don't you go and just you know do these experiments on yourself you know with training and then of course into the you know mental stuff um and then the spiritual stuff you know, and that's that's what really gives me a buzz is is getting people and getting them excited and then seeing them take that next step up that next level and understand yeah it's not even about running anymore it's about being a good human um, and being aware and serving and loving and you know being curious and open and accepting what's going on you know those are all parts of you know the mindfulness thing I think that you sort of discussed with me yeah and it's certainly I'm, I'm going to Definitely want to delve into that further. Um, I guess uh, um, talking about from a coach's side of view, I, I think you're probably uh, probably better at, at doing that than most. Um, I find it's amazing how many people I find that do actually just want to be told what to do and don't want to put any effort in into learning. And um, yes. it can be can be frustrating for myself where I spend a lot of time talking to people and uh, and then it doesn't seem to make a lot of difference. It doesn't seem to sink in. Maybe you'll get you're better at getting them to absorb it than what I am. But you're just trying to get them to understand it's it's not necessarily about about the physical thing. It's there's a lot more going on than that. But um, trying to get that penny to drop, I, I really struggle with. So uh, I might have to have a few <laughs> long runs with you and uh, yeah, absorb, absolutely absorb. Yeah, look, yeah. and everyone's different. You know, there's some people, honestly, when you, you spend enough time, you know, some people are never going to get there. Like, yeah. but just the way they live their life and, you know, it's very much about all about me and about yeah. control yeah. And, and doing everything by willpower. And yeah. so I, I'm lucky because, you know, I don't have, for my coaching, I'm not doing it to have to support myself. Um, so I have very few people and I actually send out when people approach me, I send them quite a long questionnaire and people are blown away by it because it asks them about everything, you know, ask them, you know, what are, you know, what are your fears? What are your spiritual beliefs? You know, mm. aside from the obvious stuff like what injuries you've had and your training mm. and mm. how do you fit running in with your work and family? But then, you know, I have the choice. I'm, I'm fortunate. I can say, you know, then I'll have a long phone call with them and, and I, I know if they're aligned, 
for someone that I know that I can really do something for. Sure. So in that sense, you know, I was saying to someone the other day, there's a bit of um, sampling bias. So everyone says, oh, wow, you know, you just seem to do so well with so many people. But I said it's actually sampling error because I already get people that are amazing. And then all I do is just, you know, switch a few buttons and give them a bit of reading and have a few phone calls and then suddenly they go bang you know yep. And, yep. and so so yeah it's not the same as sort of bread and butter coaching where mm. you know you, you're going to have a sample of people that you know they won't they either they want to just be told what to do and not to think for themselves you know the, yep. the old saying you know um teaching a man to fish um that sort of thing it's yeah uh, yeah yeah, some people don't. They want to be told what to do, and they don't want to, I guess, take yeah yeah take ownership of of their development. So, yeah. and that's fine. And I think as a coach, those people like certainly in the future when I retire, I may do a bit more squad coaching. And then clearly, I've got to accept that I'm going to get people like that um, that sometimes you know won't do anything you say and don't really want to explore. Explore yeah. um, difficult areas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess you know you could say if, if they're always living within the boundaries, income race day, they're going to stay within those boundaries, so they'll never Absolutely. find out what their possibilities were. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Mate, look. Um, like I said, I want to talk further about that. Uh, what I want to do. I mean, your career is just so lengthy; it's it's just nuts. Um, so I've just sort of picked out um, lots of uh, incredible performances you've done over the years. And I want uh, I want some stories, Martin. I want you to uh, tell me, and I'm quite happy for this to branch in, in into that into that spiritual uh, mindfulness type side rather than separate the two, because I know a lot of these uh, performances and and races you've done uh, certainly have gone hand in hand with that. So yes, um, obviously there's a lot more before this, um, but let's just let's just start with um, as you mentioned before, uh, Western States, the hundred mile over there in 2007. Now. You finished twenty first overall in twenty hours and thirty minutes. So that's that's not a jog, mate. That's that's a bloody good performance. But um, yeah, tell me about that one. Yeah. Um. Look, to be honest, you know, I, I hadn't done. I actually I'd done more trail running than than track running up at that stage, and I felt I'd prepared fairly well. I mean, that was interesting because there were twenty of us that went. They called it the Western States Aussie Assault. Wow, twenty and, Aussies. Yeah, and it, it wow. started from the old website Cool Running. And the funny thing is I actually got on the tail end of it. So I kept watching these threads and I thought and I just got really excited thinking about it and I went, Oh, bugger it. So I put in an entry and um I ended up having to go into the lottery. <laughs> so most of them it, what happened pretty I think they helped destroy the automatic entry for overseas entrance because by the time I went there, they said, "No, that's it. We're not. We're not allowing any more Aussies." And mm-hmm. um, on the December, I got drawn out of the barrel at Placker High School, and so I was in. Um, I look my training for it. I tried to do lots of downhill, as I'd heard, it really smashes your quads. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always hard trying to get ready for heat adaptation when you're in Canberra winter. So. Sure. I did weird things, you know, wearing five layers and and those plastic suits and all sorts mm. of odd yep. odd things. Did my best to prep. Um, I didn't really. I probably could have gone over there a bit earlier to acclimatise. I mean, because I 
we had friends in the Bay Area. Um, we spent some time with friends there, and I literally went up, you know, the night before the day before the race. Okay. Um, yeah. But yeah, look, it's it's it's. Did you get snow that year in the? In yeah, the yeah. So yeah. so that's right. Yeah. So the beginning, you know, you start at the bottom of basically the ski lifts at School mm. Valley, and you mm. go straight up, and up the top, you know, there's definitely snow, and then you start um, going sort of along what a single track but there's a lot of snow and snow melt there so your feet got really wet mm. probably, you know, very early on and then you know the strange thing you know once you get through so i got uh, what's it, robinson's flat i think is 50k ish it's the first big checkpoint and my head was spinning because i hadn't really got altitude adapted and mm that stage you've run between about nine and 14,000 feet and oh my head was spinning and I I was hoping that the medical person wasn't going to drop me because I was feeling feeling pretty lightheaded but then you, you go into the various valleys and then suddenly it's hot you know it's like a hundred degrees Fahrenheit and mm. um, yeah look it was dusty but the, uh, the good thing is I sort of anticipated what was going on and you know I probably pushed a bit too hard. Like, I think I could have gone back to WS and probably knocked a couple of hours off doing it smart. But I, I pushed pretty hard. Um, got through um, to the river, Rocky Chuck Crossing, just on sunset. And the great thing that happened there was I, I didn't have a pacer, but I was coming across the river. And the river's quite amazing because there's all these people in waders with a rope you know, I think to me it was almost up to chest height and it's sort of, you know, 70, 80 metres you've got to cross this rope. And when I got to the other side, there was a guy standing on a rock there and he's saying, anyone want a piecer? Anyone want a piecer? And I went, oh, it's just magic. And mm. because I had a really, really gone in the hole around in probably the hour before that and um, really was pretty trashed. And anyway, this guy paced me. And um, I remember through the night, like we started, you know, telling each other who we were and where we're from and that sort of stuff. We're going off into the dark. And at one stage he turned around to me and he said, oh, I know how to pace you now. I just listened to your level of groaning. <laughs> <laughs> this guy, I just, he just push, push, push. And then I just go, Ugh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. okay, that's too fast. But look, it was fantastic. And it was, uh, my family didn't come to too many of my races, but that was one of them. And uh, they were at the finish line. And, and another funny story is um, you come, you 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 do a final climb and you're in the, the suburbs near the high school there where it finishes and you come onto the track and you do about oh, 300 metres to get to the finish. And I was with mm. my pacer and there was this guy in front of me like just going onto the track probably 50 metres ahead and he had his earphones on and I thought, I said to my pacer, we're going to get him. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I would have got 20th. Anyway, unfortunately, the the bloody announcer then said oh my god martin fryer from australia is chasing dave terry and he turns around he looks at me and he says you're not allowed to do this <laughs> <laughs> and we we had a sprint finish like oh, round my. to the end of the track and he beat me i think you look at the records i think i'm like one or two seconds behind i couldn't keep up with him but mm -hmm. he was cursing me at the end saying you know i was just wanting to have a nice cruisy finish to this yeah. lovely adventure and you come along. 
Dropping a 64 final 400, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, probably not. It, it no, no, felt, yeah. felt like three-minute K, and it was probably yeah. five-minute K. But, uh, yeah. And the, the beautiful thing was to come through the finish line, and my wife, she she was crying, and my son then, um, he, there's just some photos there of giving him a big hug and having the medal put on, and it was really a peak, peak yeah. moment. And um, she, she always reminds me that they were playing um, – um, Je- Jeff Buckley, um, Hallelujah. As oh, I'm yeah. It's in. a classic, that one. Yeah, she, yeah. She just said, oh, my God, she was just bawling her eyes out. Yeah, yeah. That one will do it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, just quickly, any reason why you didn't go back, just the way life unfolded or? Uh, I don't know. I just felt like I'd done it and it was just getting harder, done that. Harder, yep. harder and harder to get into and that was yeah. around the time. When I was thrown headlong into all the international repping Australia stuff, mm, so it mm. really happened. Um, yep. First started 2006, and then that went through. You know, my most intense period to 2009, 2010, yep. and then um, not so much representing Australia in 24s. But then I started, you know, doing six-day, ten-day races. Um, yeah. Yeah, let's talk about 2009 now. Yeah, that was my big year. It was, was it was. I've got it highlighted in red, mate. So, <laughs> you won the uh, you won the Commonwealth Champs 24-hour road race. It says Great Britain, so you can tell me exactly whereabouts in Great Britain that was. Yes, yeah. So um, that was in Keswick in the in the um, Hills District. Um, okay. So that's famous famous spot. Any any trail runner worth their salt should um, should read Feet in the Clouds. Um, book I can't remember the author off the top of my head now yeah. uh, but it's about fell running in in Britain yeah. and Keswick is the center of it and there's a famous challenge there called the Bob Graham round and in that in within 24 hours I think you've got to navigate and climb about 23 of the peaks in that region and some of them there aren't marked trails so it's it's a famous thing I still wouldn't mind trying to have a go at it because it's so beautiful but it's also wild you know, yeah. it's not like going and running in the Brindies on fire trail. It's like, you know, boggy and yeah. rocky crags and you've you've got to sort of keep going through, you know, typical British rain and bog. Mm. Yep. So yeah, that so that was in Keswick. Um, so you ran 255. I always amazed about the uh, the accuracy of the distance you run because they always take <laughs> it down. <laughs> so yeah. you ran 255.934 kilometres. Um, yes. That's yeah, not so too that bad for first, 24 hours. Yeah, Is, yeah that was yeah. the first time. I mean, it's interesting when we talk about what we think we're capable of. You know, way back when I started 24s, uh, the first time I repped Australia, uh, um, I did 233, and everyone said, that's just amazing. You know, and I came 11th in the world in Taiwan in 2006. And I thought, oh, you know, that's it. I can't, surely I can't go any further than that. And then some years later, in Seoul 2008, I ran 247, and suddenly I went, oh, gee, I can run over 240, and then uh, Keswick was the first time I ran over 250. Yep, okay. So that was, yeah, that, and what, what was hard about that race, it was actually a race where all the media and everything had me as the favourite, and I found yeah. mentally that was, you know, quite difficult to... Um, to process but i just had to sort of let it go yeah yeah and, so um, so what did the commonwealth champs actually involve like like 
or the yeah, Commonwealth so countries. And, of, yeah. yeah, so obviously the level of competition is nothing like the world. So essentially mm. the, the Commonwealth countries. So yeah, yeah. Um, probably the major competition, you know, really were the Brits, mm. um, probably more than anything. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was interesting. I mean, they, were, they had um, 24 hour, they had and 100K as well. And we had a 100K team there. So we had the joy of, after our race of the next day, going and watching the 100K road. Um, and then they had um, a, a trail race as well. And there was actually a single guy from Kenya there uh, who's the only one in the team that came and did the trail. And we got to watch the trail race. We were right up on one of the, one of the high points of the course. And there was this Kenyan guy and the British guy um, they had to do a series of circuits up there and, and the Kenyan would smoke him on the uphill and then the British guy was really great at the technical and beat him on the downhill. Yeah, okay. But yeah. Um, then they had to run all the way back down and then they had about 3K rolling cross-country at the end. And when we saw them leave, I, you know, I said to the people I was with, you know, the Kenyan will smoke him because when we talked to him... Uh, Later on, he was a dropout from the Kenyan marathon team. You know, he only only could do a two twelve or something. Yeah, <laughs> so, it's you know, when he yeah. gets on rolling cross country, the Brit guy hasn't got a chance. So yeah, yeah, sure. Really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, alrighty, forty eight hour race in, if I can pronounce this, Sergers in in, yeah, in France. Yep. Yeah. So four hundred and thirty three point six eight six kilometers. Yes. That's unbelievable. Because that that is my absolute, you know, highest point of my career. And in, yeah. in fact, no one has beaten that since that time so far. So around yeah. 11, 11 years so far. I mean yeah. Giannis Kouros um holds the world record, which is four seventy three. And he also, all the other performances above me are from Kuros. He's done 440s, 450s. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was pretty, that was a pretty, that was the peak race yeah. for me, sure. Yeah. For sure. Unbelievable. Um, and that's, is that on a track or on a road or what's that so, so the background of that, um, unfortunately, Sagers doesn't exist anymore. You know, it ran out of sponsorship. But it, it was basically the de facto world 48-hour champs, and it was invitation only. And I took it as a goal of mine. I, I raced in Australia, and I think I did a 393K, and then I, I actually contacted the race director and said, I want to be invited um, and so I got invited there. There's only 24 runners from around the world, and it's a 301 meter decomposed granite track. So you think a 400 meter track is small? Yeah, okay. <laughs> this is going round and round that for 48 hours. And just to make it worse, it was in summer yeah. in France, uh, so it was hot. Yeah. Uh, like it got to the 30s on both the the days that were out there. Yeah. Um, they don't let you change direction halfway to load up the other uh, side of the body. Yeah, I'm trying to remember that one. Most of these races change direction every four to six hours. Oh, I can't that's remember nice. whether it was four or six. Um, but okay. yeah, it's 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 pretty intense, you know, mental, mental and physical game to mm. go around a 300 mm. meter track against the mm. best in the world. Mm. Mm. Um, I don't know. There's something something special happened that race, and I guess. 
you know, I say to people that I coach, you know, one day, you know, everyone's got that perfect race in them and you don't know when it's going to come. But when you get a sniff of it and you've actually got a chance to win it, you know, you've got to go for it. And that's what happened to me there. Um, I didn't have any crew uh, the first day. I was making up bottles of horrible warm perpetuum and <laughs> stuff. Yeah. And I did a, you know, I had this run walk strategy. In fact, I had some of the locals that were booing me because um, my strategy was to run, I think it was four, just run four laps and then walk a whole lap. Okay. And, and all the French people were booing me and going, LA, 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 LA. They thought I was piking out already. But I gradually moved through the field from, I think I was back about 15th out of 24 and um, got to the end of the first day and I'd done 224K and I was still coming fourth with 224K yeah, first right. day. Three yeah. people ahead of me were Japanese, which was yeah. one man and two women. I mean, wow. they, they just race like, crazy the yeah 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 lead Japanese guy had done 250 in day one um i did 224 and then you know the the real the race really changed through this that second night sort of 30 mm. 36 hours and they had really done themselves in in the heat mm. and suddenly i got a sniff and yeah i was the creature of the night and i actually just started running faster and almost doing sort of straights and curve type type mm. uh, efforts and i don't know it was just like i was possessed I, I look at the lap splits now and it's just crazy you know mm. and last hour um i knew i was getting somewhere near some sort of records and it was so it was four o'clock in the afternoon and it was hot again and but the second day i had um, someone crew for me uh, alan young from scotland and he'd gone to crew um, for Tony Mangan from Ireland, but Tony had dropped out. So he crewed for me the second day and that just made a huge difference. And he pumped me along and he, in his Scottish accent said, embrace the pain. It's <laughs> <laughs> like this. And it was just all yeah. a big blur to me. Mm, but mm. yeah, I mean, the, I mean, it, it was a great achievement. And to me, I mean, it's probably, I've been looking at records, but I think I'm the only human that's ever run 200k plus in successive days out outdoors and that includes okay. so i did 224 and then i did 209 so yeah hopefully okay. at least for a while until someone like camille heron who's a female runner that did yep. 2724 i think she wants to have a crack and i reckon she may beat it <laughs> yeah no, she's tough she's tough she's she? yeah i think she'll have a crack or i think yeah. she'll most likely to bust it. So I'd be delighted when it happens, but, you know, I can, yeah. I've had years of fun. <laughs> yeah, I think she had a crack at, at Comrades last yeah. year when I was there, and I, I don't think she finished. I think she was carrying an injury. Is that right? Or? Yeah, that's correct, yeah. But yeah. She's also, she had a go at the 48, and again, I don't think she had to drop for something, but I watched yeah. her. I, you know, I took the Aussie team as their coach to France last year for the World 24s. And she is just unbelievable to yeah. watch. It's just like this person's going to bust a lot of records. Um, yeah, and she's made drinking beer during the event. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think part of it, yeah, she's got sponsors and exactly. And so, yeah. Sure. She, I think she has. She have. Um, it's not burgers. I think it might be burritos and beer or something. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, look, I really just when when you watch that sort of stuff, 
you know mm. you go where you know and and that you know as a coach again you're thinking what you know what where do these people go but i think i know now but it's mm. just like uh, to be able to do it even faster like keeping a, a faster pace for longer and longer yeah um, it's like kuros's 303k 24-hour world record no one's got near it yeah. i think they've got about 20k and if you look at the splits of that race he ran two sub three hour marathons at the beginning yeah, <laughs> day race so yeah, yeah yeah is he still moving these days i think so I, yeah. I, he's popped up here and there um, okay but i yeah. don't actually know i know he was living in europe for a while and back yeah. to australia so i don't know it's it's unfortunate because i would have liked to have seen him you know come back and again maybe you know, spread some of his knowledge and stuff. But yeah. I, th- I think, unfortunately, the poor guy was before his time and he never really got, I guess, the money and fame that perhaps he should have. And I think there's, a, you know, a little bit of bit- bitterness about that, that because he certainly asked people for appearance money and stuff, and probably rightfully so, but mm. you know, the ultra world isn't built on lots of money and sponsorship. So... You know, for him, I guess, you know, he just did these amazing things and, you know, people acknowledge it. But, um, you know, if he was in any other sport, he'd be a multi-millionaire. And sure. So, yeah, I yeah. mean, that's uh, – uh, there's a book, great book, one of the early books on ultras I read called To the Edge by Kirk Johnson. It's a journalist that goes and ends up running Badwater himself. He investigates it and then he runs Badwater, you know, the race across the desert. Yes. Yeah, in America, and uh, I think there's a saying in there. He he called you know ultra marathon is sports under a rock, you know, because all the other sports it's very high profile and mm. glamorous. This mm. is sort of hidden under a rock. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not doing it for fame. <laughs> yeah, and, and and a lot of people like it that way. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, mm. I mean, there's some people who've made careers out of it, Dean Carnazzi's and and Scott Jurek and others. But yeah, um, look, you know we. I think my my father-in-law, who's American, couldn't understand why the hell I, you know, I'm doing this. He said, you know, what, what are you getting? Where's the money? You know, what? Yeah, yeah. And he just, just doesn't get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I always say health is wealth. Yes, yeah. that's right. Mate, I just, I'm just thinking about the logistics of running around the track for 48 hours. Like, I'm thinking if I'm hurt and I'm sore, everything's seasoned up. I mean, obviously you've got to stop, but it must be so hard to get going again. How do you... How do you navigate through that? Yeah, so Sajers so is a good a good example. I, I certainly found out from the 24-hour races that I had no problems with the sleep deprivation. So at Sajers, I actually went down for a sleep in the first night because uh, they gave us, as invited runners, they gave us a little caravan that was on the inside of the track. It had your Aussie flag on it. And I went in and I tried to lie down and my head was spinning and my pulse was pumping in my feet and I just, I was burning up like your, your metabolism's just going crazy. Mm. And I, I probably had 10, 15 minutes and I just said, you know, I might as well just be out there. Like this isn't happening. So I just went back out and never went back in again. So that's one of the things that gave me such a huge total is I just stayed out there. I probably had, you know, 20 minutes off the track. Yeah, and that one break, and the rest of the time yeah. I was out there for the okay. rest of the two days. Yeah. Are you changing shoes, changing socks, changing gear? Like, uh, I, I've been someone. I think in the early days, 
I thought that was all smart doing lots of shoes and socks changes mm. and then I started to see that some of it was just part of anxiety and like if it's not needed you know yeah okay don't fix it sort of thing yeah and I know some runners they sort of very in a very you know controlled manner have their schedule and I'm going to change into these shoes at yeah. eight hours. but often it did them damage I mean yeah. clearly if there's issues like the you know foot care becomes a big deal mm. in multi-day races and but I was doing so well you know, I basically didn't tend to it at all, and my feet were an absolute mess. I think I went, had a shower uh, before the awards ceremony, and pretty much all 10 toenails came off with all the skin on all the toes. It was pretty ugly. Mm-hmm. It was unbelievable. But that's the thing. Like, there's a point where you have to decide in a, a race like that that you're just not going to tend to it. But if it's something that is going to completely affect your gait and is then going to cause another injury by changing your gait then you need yeah. to do stuff about it so then when i you know pushed on to do things like six day races then you really have to then deal with each of those issues you know bust bust blisters you know put on tape do whatever you have to do um because things like that become things that will put you out of the race eventually yeah sure um 2010, um, obviously you're very good at going along, but you've also got a bit of speed in you. And six-foot track, you've gone 346, 36, finishing ninth. So obviously, you you know, you can tick over pretty strong as well. So that's that's mighty fine running as well. Yeah, I think I think that was just – that was sort of the golden period. Um, I, I think, you know, Arthur Lydiard certainly and I think maybe Percy Serity knew that for a lot of people, if you can do sort of five to seven years of a lot of aerobic work and not have many injuries, that that's sort of your peak. And I think to me, you know, when I look back at my career, that I was peaking in 2009 and 2010. And so, you know, I could run fast and I could run long and I was just bulletproof, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's interesting. It's just that aerobic base. Um, yeah, yeah. I you remember, weren't doing any extra strength in the gym. Or it was just no, all running, running no, hills. I, and, yep. No, yeah, I did no gym work, no stretching. Uh, yeah. I did a lot of long, easy stuff. But the thing that I discovered and in my training diaries that really helped me in the long races was sprint work. And in fact, you know, doing, you know, sort of between 15 to 30 second efforts flat out either on the flat or uphill and doing things like the, um, the, you know, the 30, thirties, um, 30 on 30 off. Yeah. Yeah. The Veronique Billat sessions that, yeah got a lot of press um i'd started reading that stuff and doing it and i thought wow yeah, like this is yeah. making ultras better not only yeah. is the speed getting better but my legs were so tough yeah that i'd get to 20 hours in a 24 hour race and they weren't sore and i and i looked at my logbook and that was the only thing that had changed so yeah, yeah. with my people now um that i coach you know sprints are absolute part of it and at first they go what <laughs> and yeah. then when they realize like last weekend um Joe Ward, you know, who I coach, won the 24-hour invitational. And he was just saying in the last few hours, God, I can really, now the sprint work's all coming to roost because your slow-twitch fibres have crapped out and the ones that you've sort of been converting over by doing the sprints, you've actually got a kick 
even though the rest of you is completely stuffed. Yeah. And yeah. I, you know, again, uh, to me, even though I'm a physiologist, I, I pick that up by just looking at my own training diaries. Yeah. So yeah, yeah I'm a big, big proponent of you know um, quality, quality sprint work uh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure, definitely. Is it um is it true that you know like towards the end of these really long endurance runs when the slow twitch fibers and intermediate fibers and all that fatigue and your body sort of goes searching for help, it starts to recruit those fast twitch fibers. Is that? Oh, I believe so. I'm not yeah. sure if anyone can yeah, prove, yeah. but I I think to me the proof of the pudding was yeah like for example being at the end of you know the 24 hour at the world champs is it's frightening like you're so tired and there's probably half a dozen runners within you know 100 meters of each other fighting it out for places when you the time you just want to you know sit down and die yeah, yeah. and so you've got to have a kick and that's i think you know that's when it all sort of came together in my mind so mm, whether that mm. is the actual physiology i think mm. you certainly can recruit some different set of fibers i think um yep. in that yep. situation and unless you've done it before because it's got to come you know first you've got to have the central command from your brain to be able to do it and a bit of adrenaline and and caffeine helps as well <laughs> you know in the last 90 minutes i just mm. crank crank up the caffeine and sugar and just go, you know what, this is it. You know, this is your moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, you have to definitely get the adrenaline up and use what I call, you know, the mongrel component needs to cut in then. It's, um, you know, that survival and high adrenaline type thing. But you can only do that for so long. And, I, you know, I talk to the people I coach about your final push and, you know, you need to experiment, you know, how – just how far out should I make a push if I'm racing someone? It's mm. like cross country. I know I don't have a super fast kick. So if with someone, maybe I have to go a bit earlier and, you know, with my final push um, yeah. rather than if someone just sprint me in the last 50. Yeah. So it's the same sort of thing, but on a yeah. different scale, yeah. 24s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always go wide so they can't grab your shoulders and go <laughs> past them. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, Mate, 2011, the Shri Shimnoi six-day race over there in the States. Tell yes. us about that. Oh, wow. Well, so, look, I'd, I'd had one shot at a six-day before that. Uh, I think it was the year before, uh, 2010. I w I'd gone over to Bornholm, the island off the bottom of Sweden, and had a go. And I, I really went way too hard. Uh, I actually did – I'd done 300 miles uh, – in under the, under three days at the beginning, like I just went nuts. I think I did yeah four four eighty six k in seventy hours. So it's three hundred milers back to back. Uh, but I had Achilles stuff and it absolutely destroyed me. And so I dropped out basically mm. halfway through my first go. So then yeah, I'd heard about the Sri Chinmoy races and a lot of good things. And it was also a race where it looked possible to crew for myself because it's really difficult to get someone to spend time to crew for you you know mm. most people are busy you're going to take a week of their leave to come and help you run around a circle in new york um so yeah i, I went there i i was well trained um i pushed hard as you know i guess from my 24 and 48 hour pedigree 
I, I probably went out too hard, but I basically burnt off most of my competitors fairly early on and it was all going pretty well. And then with about day and a half, two days to go, I got food poisoning. Um, so a guy, uh, a legendary ultra runner himself, Trishal Churns, had been helping me out sometimes and, and going and getting some bits of sandwiches and things and putting them on my plate as I, so I run by and pick them up. But unfortunately, some of those had mayo on them. Uh, sort of egg and mayo sandwiches <laughs> okay. and they've been sitting in the sun for 12 hours and mm. so then I I basically had uh, diarrhea for a day and a half and I all I could do was walk and watch people try to catch my lead mm. so I just had to stay out walking and go in the toilet for about 36 hours and I'm, thankfully I made it got through to the end and and I won it with I think I did about 784k so I was probably capable of doing more but it was um it was an amazing experience because the atmosphere and that's you know now of course I I do a lot with the Sri Chinmoy group and when I came back from there they invited me to Rainbow Dreams and and wanted me to be involved with them um and I think you know, there was a realisation that um, certainly Sri Chinmoy himself, you know, felt that if you could combine meditation and um, and extreme running like that, that it just gave you a shortcut to some amazing self-awareness and insights. And, and I've, I've found that to be absolutely true. Yeah. Like, because I think, you know, in the Western world, we're told that it's all about us and we're the master of our domain and and we can control everything. And um, what happened What happened to me in that six-day race is essentially you get deconstructed and I guess your mind goes and your body goes. And then there was a point in there where I suddenly just felt like I was just pure awareness, like I was nothing. I, I was just part an absolute, you know, integral part of, of the world. And there was no thoughts, you know, there was no sense of separation from the world. Uh, and it was just this, it suddenly was this, I guess, state that I'd never experienced. And when mm. I came back from that race, I remember sitting at work for months on end and I'd sometimes just stare in the computer screen and I'd just go, you know, what what happened? You know, what was all that about? And that started to make me, you know, think about the big questions, you know, that mm. everyone does. Why are we here? What, what What's our purpose? Like, what what is, what's the relationship between mind and body, you know? It, it, so I did a lot of reading after that, um, and that took me into, you know, Sri Chinmoy reading some of uh, his writings and meditations and also what's called non-dualist philosophy, basically the idea that, actually all we are is pure awareness and that i think you know when you having a peak sports performance you know people are you know there's a lot of literature about the flow state i think the flow state is where um you know you've gone beyond body you've gone beyond mind and then basically you're just pure being you're not doing anything anymore you just are and it's very, very hard to put into words, but I think it this is, is but, yeah. but I, that's, so, so I look yeah. at it when you're talking about mindfulness, I, you know, mm. I see 
this transition, I guess, at, at, you know, for people that are beginning, it's about doing stuff on their body, you know, so they're in the body and the it's their body against the world or against the competition. And then the next level is mindfulness and witnessing. So now they're in their mind and they understand they can witness their thoughts and, you know, try to be non-judgmental in sort of classic mindfulness. But then I think the next level is actually you're not body or mind, you just are. You've basically dissolved uh, into a, a point where you're so immersed that you know, you're not a separate object anymore. You you are just part of this sea of awareness. And and I think that allows people, you know, to go to be able to do some really crazy things. And so they essentially they're going from a state of doing stuff to a sense of being. Um, yep. And what, what, what do you think like that, you know, what triggered you was that, you know, that uh, exhaustion through that six day race. And I've heard other, uh, not just athletes, but people talk about it, but it's usually a trigger from where the body's been completely exhausted before you get to that, let's just call it level three that you just yeah, spoke yeah. about. So w- w- why do you think you have to, you know, to you know, be so exhausted before your brain or the chemistry sort of triggers you into that. And once you've been there yourself, and um, you know, you're a big study of it now, an advocate of it. Like, is there? Can you get to that state without having to run four days around a block in New York? You know what I mean? like, <laughs> that's a, that's exactly the point my dad said. <laughs> yeah, he said, "Do you really have to do that to get enlightened?" And I I use the word enlightened, you know, yeah. sort of yeah. as a bit of a joke. But yeah. uh, in in fact, the answer for me and for quite a lot of people is yes, because I was always very much a, like a Type A achiever at stuff. You know, I just would do well at everything and I was using, you know, willpower and controlling everything. And that all works really well and can get you a long way. But, you know, what happens when you can't control things anymore? And what happens when you basically willpower is gone and your mind, the mind can only work well when it knows all the parameters. But once Mm. you start to have the unknowns, the mind starts speculating and sends people into downward spirals and things. But when you're so exhausted, we haven't had sleep for two or three days. And so in a way, it was it forced me, it forced my ego and the things that get in the way. Basically, it just destroyed them. And look, Mm. I'm sure some people exist in in everyday life in that lovely state. You know, there are some amazing people that just have that poise and peace that's Mm -hmm. natural. It's not artificial. and, And they know that already. Um, and, you know, I say to people, you know, the idea of this business of separation is you're going for your morning trail run um, at sunrise and you see the sunrise and it's just perfect. It's perfect. And you are actually, you're not separated. You're part of it. You know, it's you, sunrise, um, trail path, bush smells, whatever. And then mm. as soon as you separate into your head and you go, oh, what an amazing sunrise, then you've spoiled it. Now you've separated. And then the next thing is you say, oh, I'll take a photo for Facebook. Then you've really buggered it up. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the thing. Like, while you're just not even thinking about it and yeah. you, you are, you're actually part of the awareness of the of the sunrise and the landscape and everything else. And, and I think... You know, people that have had their peak running experiences will know when they've had that moment because they're not actually thinking about anything. 
Yeah, and then it's not as if they were they were trying to push that moment to come. It just no. it just happened. They, they, they had no yeah. clue that it was going to happen. Yeah. They probably they probably wonder why why can't that happen again? And they'll try to go looking for it, and that'll probably upset. Yeah, and that's the happening. problem. It's like yeah, it's the as mm. the Buddhists say, it's attachment. Like now you go, oh, that's a really cool state. I want that. Yeah. And the the paradox is, the more you try and get it, the less you'll get it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of those um, things, but I think look the 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 short answer is I had lots of layers of thinking I could control everything, and it had been very successful with those techniques. Yeah. But once you start going further and further out, you suddenly understand that you've got to, as they say, let let go to get control. You know, yeah, it's it's yeah. the big paradox. Yeah. All right, I'm just going to quickly um, go over a couple of races here. Um, just the fact you won a 40-hour race in the, in uh, Caboolture there. You covered uh, 388.429 kilometres. That yes. was uh, 2011 as well. So, um, yeah, it's the same year as that six-day race over there. Yes. Uh, you won a Centennial Park 100K, uh, oh, 8 yes. hours and 30 seconds. That's uh, it's not a bad time for 100K, mate. Yeah, um, it was, it was uh, disappointing. I, I actually got terrible. It was actually quite warm, and I got terrible calf cramps. Mm-hmm. And um, actually, it was the, the the now Melbourne coach Sean Williams was there, and um, I, I was going to just drop out. And he said, "Look, you know, just now purposefully walk on your heels and try and just stretch it out." So I actually walked, you know, half of one of those three point something k laps. So I would have busted eight hours, and then at the end, of course, I was going great, and I was just going as hard as I could and missed missed sub eight by thirty seconds, which was very annoying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sub eight is like a big barrier for a lot of you hundred k boys, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like again, I didn't have blistering speed, but you know, I yeah, had yeah. I had good stamina, and I, you know, I guess I never I never really focused on the hundred k distance. Yeah. Um, it's a pretty ugly distance. I mean, it's made. There's not many marathoners that convert to a good 100K, and there's probably yeah. not 24-hour people that convert to a good 100K. There's a certain breed of runner that have just got that stamina and can still run a solid marathon, but they can extend yeah. themselves, yeah. Someone like Brendan Davies would be in yeah, that exactly. category, wouldn't he? Yeah, I mean, yeah. classic, yeah. But, yeah. see, Brendan still hasn't smashed a 24. I mean, I, I think he'll maybe do it one day but he's had a few cracks and he's just on the track and he's just said to me oh that's the most miserable thing i've ever done (laughs) but i'm sure like he's completely capable of running a huge total but you know it's they're all different yeah yeah 2012 uh international six-day ultra in hungary you finished second there what's that one all about ah okay yeah so that was um I, i i i really felt i could I guess my goal, I felt like I was capable of sort of over 900K, but I certainly wanted to break 800 because I think above 800 for six day puts you in the pretty much, you know, pretty high level. There's not a lot of people that have done it. So then I had a proper crew, Alan Young, the guy that had crewed for me at Sagers. And um, look, I've, I've raced against the one of the legends of ultra running, Wolfgang Schwerk, who himself... I think at one stage it held the world 24 record. He held the record for a thousand miles. Um, he, I think he had one stage held the record for the Sri Chinmoy 3100. He, he, he was amazing. And so I actually had a 
a stoush with him and an Italian runner in that race as far as pushing each other. I mean, I think, yeah, I think by the end of day two, I'd already done like three, 330K or something okay. in the first two days. But um, the weather conditions turned crazy. Um, there was a lot of um, tactics used between the different crews and um, the dilemma I had there that I think, you know, I'd never be a great six-day racer is I could never get to sleep. And so that's great for the first three or four days, but then I'd go in and lie down and I just never lost consciousness. So I actually got right through to the last night um, and I think I passed 500 miles, which is about 8.04K at like two or three in the morning and the race was going to finish at midday. And then I came in and I finally got some sleep. Um, So I pretty much trashed my race. I still, I was, I was clearly an outright second and I was like 60K behind Schwerk and he got a a bit scared on the last night that I was catching him, but I was just completely wrecked with five days of no sleep. Yeah. Is this a road loop or is it on the track again? Uh, So that one, yeah. So that was, um, that was a loop on, it's basically, it's at Balaton Furet is this uh, Lake Balaton. If you look at a map of Hungary, is this big lake in the middle of Hungary and it's sort of a couple of hours away from Budapest. And there's all these um, beautiful sort of holiday parks and camping grounds on the lake on the North Shore. And this, this basically used the paths that went between the cabins uh, at, at that venue. So it was sort of a windy almost 1k loop as i remember yeah so just going round and round that there were no i don't think there were direction changes i think that was all one way yeah um, yeah so it was yeah it was it wasn't an easy course it had a little bit of a hill it was very dark at night and i um, can honestly say i saw gremlins and goblins on the mm. last night <laughs> i mean sure. Really full-on hallucinations, but okay. yeah, that was. I mean, I was I was very proud of that race because you know I, I busted the 800k, and um, it was there's just something special about racing against you know some of the best in the world um, at that race, and you know I haven't really done any gone any further with six days since then. I'd mm. it's sort of one of those things. It's like you know you've got all the trophies on the shelf and the the one i wanted was to sort of try and get up towards 900 but um with increasing age and then going on and doing stage races and other things it's just felt Mm. like oh well let's move on and do something else (laughs) Mm. like you did the following year the uh shrewsham 10 days that's right race yeah around flushing meadows there in queens new york where you um finished first covering 1158 kilometers mate like all right Tell me about this one. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so I remember after finishing the sixth day, someone sort of said, you know, to me on the side, oh, so that's good. Now you've done the fun run. Now you've got to do the proper one. <laughs> so yeah. the sixth day was a fun run. And, but I went in with in a, in a much better headset for that because I understood, you know, the three Chinmoy people and their wonderful network um, and – it's a very special race. It's like being invited to a, a special party, um, and it just the atmosphere. I mean, you know, dare I say, the spiritual atmosphere, but just the the, the enthusiasm 
and the and the spirit around the race is it's just an amazing place to be so it's a one mile loop it was the same one mile loop uh in a park uh in flushing meadows that uh, you did in 2011 for the six day race yeah, yeah. So yeah. It was then i think they've changed the course since then uh, uh, it always was subject to a bit of flooding and stuff i mean it, it's okay. it's a crazy venue there's you're right near laguardia uh, airport and there's planes landing every 30 seconds so there's aircraft noise of planes yeah. on scent you're in a open public park so on the weekend there's all these people out there um one one section goes next to a freeway that's just busy all day at night time you're going under underpasses in the dark and worrying you might get mugged and they've got a you know three chinmoy guard there that might you know meditate someone to death <laughs> with a yeah. gun <laughs> it's like mm. um yeah uh, the great thing i went in with the right headset and i took the pressure off myself and i said now i need to learn to do a bit less in the first few days and see if i can learn to get some sleep and I managed to do that. And again, I went pretty hard, but I'd burnt off most of the field by day three. So in a way, I actually probably bludged a lot the 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 last seven days. You know, I did enough to stay ahead, but I actually then was getting, you know, three, four hours sleep at night. And it was just such a nicer way to race. Um, mm. You know, still doing solid totals, but um, yeah, I'd, it was just a joyful race for me and I knew then not having someone to push me I guess I could have done probably another couple of hundred k than that but I really got to enjoy it and take it all in and and I learned about you know pulling back enough to be able to get some sleep and experimenting you know what's the difference between having like two hours versus four hours sleep and what it does for your recovery Mm, yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Do you sort of have some sort of structure where you say I'm going to run for four hours and then have a rest, or do you just wait until you know that you really need to rest? Yeah, I mean that that's the million dollar question. I think people that are doing multi days, you know, up towards six and ten days, that's the thing. Um, you know, you can plan it all out with this beautiful plan, and it all just you know goes down the toilet. Mm. Um, you know, you'll say right, I plan after after 27 hours i'm going to have a four-hour sleep and you lie there and you can't get to sleep so mm, you know mm. do you get up um so so i guess that the two extremes the uh, one extreme was people would run the first you know two to two and a half days and not sleep and just get a lot of k's up and then go to where essentially you are falling asleep <laughs> you yeah, know yeah yeah just on the on the track and then you go in i mean yeah and so what up, what, what are their obje objectives to actually win the thing? Are they there to just get the best out of themselves? Or are they trying to get so many kilometres? When they say, you pretty much say they go two, two and a half days to get as many Ks in, is that yeah, to be I mean, competitive? For, or? Yeah, that's for people at the pointy end, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Going for it. But what, what amazed me, what's beautiful about that race, is that there were a lot of like three Chinmoy people there um, that haven't done much training and they just go along you know they call it the self-transcendence race and they go mm. there just to just stay out there and some of these people you know don't really look like they've done much training at all but they still mm. end up doing you know three three four hundred k over the six days and yeah there's just when you're in that atmosphere of people that are all just you know running from the heart and yeah. not heads then it, it becomes infectious and i think that really 
that had a really even bigger effect on me uh, that year. Yeah. Um, to, so how many how many people roughly do it, and is it capped at a certain number? Or um, yeah, did you, they they've quite picky with applications. Um, mm. oh, I I'm not sure of the size of the fields. I'd have to look back. I think that in the the biggest fields were roughly sort of maybe twenty. 20 in each maximum yeah okay yep yep that were they set the limits at but mm-hmm. uh, you know the actual level at the pointy end of competition varied over the years i, I mean i'm i mean i i think the year i did it it wasn't a super strong field um probably for the six and the ten like i was still running solidly but i mean some of the people that came through the years you know would have made it really tough and yeah yeah. So it changes from year to year. Um, yeah. Do you start to see familiar faces that you see in these 48-hour, six-day races sort of pop up and go, oh, there's so that yes, guy again? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's some some people that are <laughs> – well, there's a one, there was one interesting chap from um, – I think he's from Norway, um, KG Nystrom or, or Sweden, and um, he's like in his 70s, and he'd be at all these six-day races everywhere – and I, I, I had this realisation one day when I sort of talked to him that you know, this was a guy that pretty much, I, I'm not sure what happened with his family, but it, it, if he didn't have these six-day races, you know, someone had put him in a home. Yeah, okay. So instead, he just loved the camaraderie. He'd come to these races and he'd do what he could each day and <laughs> he'd actually pull out a little hip flask <laughs> and be walking around having a nip of whiskey <laughs> You know, just before he went and had his lie down. But, you know, people, you know, come to be part of a family. I mean, a pretty, pretty, well, to outside people, dysfunctional family, but to the people that understand what's going on, it's an an amazing um, family of people all just, you know, understanding what each other's going through. And again, the self-transcendence, they understand that by putting yourself out there into these situations that you you learn stuff about yourself that you really can't well not many people would learn in other ways mm, mm. um yeah i mean you, you sort of brush over these races how quickly there's so much i'd love to actually <laughs> find out i mean it's just the way it goes especially with the podcast but yeah i've really got to uh get into the into the details about it all. i just can't imagine running around a block for 10 days it's just uh <laughs> You can't even sort of imagine what you actually have to, to go through. So, anyway, let's let's move on to this race. That's I don't know. It's just I can't believe I'm looking at it. But you're gonna have to tell me all about it. It's uh, it was the Tour de France foot race in 2015. So, oh, it yeah. says it says that you covered 2,741 kilometers over 43 stages. Yes. So, I mean, what the hell's going on there, mate? Like, uh. <laughs> Like, so look, you know, I was at that stage in my career, and I go, well, I've ticked various boxes. I'd never done a stage race, and I don't know. I, I saw that somehow that came on Facebook. It was advertised, and I was just at that spot. I said, I've got to do it. Like it's crazy. I've no idea what I'm doing. I've just got mm-hmm. to do it. And I, I had no experience doing stage races. And when I got there. Um, most of the people that were in there were, I think, the 24 runners ended up starting. Um, and most of the people, some of them, like the the guys at the pointy end, I was racing. You know, they had run across Europe. They had done like Trans Europe and Trans Gaul and all these amazing stage races. So they were sort of like 
very knowledgeable about it and I just came along not really know <laughs> what I was in for. Um, yeah, so it started started in Paris, uh, 24 runners started and essentially it was a big clockwise loop around France and it covered what apparently was very close to the course of the very first Tour de France cycle race because okay. you know they've changed the course all mm. over the place. They've had northern and southern sectors and things. But um, we actually went through some of the sections that the actual cycling race was going to be on that year. We were there about a week before, so there was some signage out on the roads. Um, but effectively, it was 43 days. There were no rest days, and that was the killer. So, you mm. know, unlike the tour, like as soon as you started getting a niggle or injury, um, You've somehow got to deal with it when the next day you're going to have could have a 75k stage mm. and this went day after day the other thing that made it really tough was there was a heat wave hit france when we started and the first 10 days um got up to 40 degrees a couple of days so on the side of the road which is where it was run um it's probably 50 degrees so it's like doing bits of bad water <laughs> in france um and then just to sort of add into it, um, it's not like we're stopping in hotels or anything. When we finished the stages, we uh, camped out in tents with four or five other runners in each communal tent. Um, often they didn't have ice for us. Some of them were quite, you know, poorly, poorly um, poor facilities and campgrounds. Uh, it's French summer, so they're often people partying in the campgrounds and being noisy all night and this is all while you're trying to recover from an average of 65k a day for what's that six weeks in a row so you're yeah, aver yeah. averaging four 450k a week for six weeks yeah i'm just i'm just looking at the days here i mean you you know obviously got all your daily breakdown in times and seven hours six hours four hours 45 six hours 48 hours 20 but at the end of the 43 days you've You've been out there for um, where was it? it was it almost got to ten k an hour. I think I did nine point something. I was trying. I was tr wanted to try and crack that average of yeah. six k's. Um, mm. but yeah, in total, two hundred eighty-one hours and twenty-three minutes you were running. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's nuts. I mean, like again, I can't can't even imagine how how your body holds up to that. Um, yeah, I just just can't. I mean, just trying to do two days of thirty k's is hard enough, but it's just. Yeah, so I think I mean I think what happens with those, and you know, mm. talking with the people and then experiencing it is, you know, obviously, well, you know, the first the first week was really bad. Like you're just getting up each day, and they say go, and you you sort of tight and just you know walking, trying to get warmed up again. Mm. Um, and then, you know, you'd start to discover your, I guess, your recovery routines and obviously getting as many calories in as you can. Like it's impossible to keep up on calories and then elevating your legs. And I actually, you know, would put some meditation MP3s on and go and find, get under a tree um, and again, just keep eat, eating and drinking and trying to just recover. Um, I did start to get some Achilles stuff and gastroc stuff, but managed to self-massage. Um, but gradually, people started dropping out because they couldn't mm. recover, and so, so they don't they don't provide masseuse to sort of give you a rub down. Well, the there actually day. was there was a guy um, who's actually um, 
Graham Doak, who was husband of Marie Doak, and they Marie had done Costa Cozzi many times, and she while she she's an Australian, uh, she often lives in Britain, but she was in the race. Eventually, she had to drop, but Graham was kind enough to at least for the first, I think two or three weeks, um, give us some massage sometime. So that that helped a yeah. bit. But so they monitor they, your, do you, your body weight like throughout no, the event? They, no. yeah, there was almost no monitoring at all of anything. <laughs> it was yeah, it was okay. pretty pretty loose. Um, were, you, were you finishing that event like four or five kilos lighter? Yeah, look, I, I don't know. I Certainly I look yeah. at the before and after photos and everyone's pretty lean and mean. Um, like, like, like those cyclists in the Tour de France. Yeah, There's the amazing. Nothing skin and bone, the, yeah. Best part for me before that race, I talked to some of the people that do the 3100 mile race, the Sri Chinmoy, and I asked them a bit about their experiences because they're there for two months. And some of them said, Oh, yeah, look, after about you know two to three weeks, your body adapts and then you know you actually get stronger. Well, I kept saying at the end of each week, When is this gonna happen? Yeah, yeah, like to yeah. me, it happened at about five weeks. So the last two weeks, you can actually look at the results. Yeah, um. I think there only were down to about 12 of us, half the field left that could potentially yeah. finish. Yeah. Um, and I was always sort of, for at, at the beginning, I was coming sort of second or third and I even won a stage here and then. And then I realised I was racing too hard and so I backed it off for a while because I thought I was going to get injured and just really just enjoyed the scenery and, you know, finished a bit further down the table. And that worked out well. And then by the end, I think I won four or five of the last seven stages. Um, the Japanese guy was way ahead of me. Um, and I was trying to actually get him to race me so he'd, so he'd blow because he was starting to get a bit injured. Mm. But he obviously cottoned on to what I was doing. So I, I basically was doing a Bradbury working yeah, yeah. my way up through the field watching people break and then just hanging on so i ended yeah, up looking yeah. at here it looks like yeah you, you won five of the last six stages and you finished second overall yes yeah so i, I just yeah. felt fantastic in fact I, the day i woke up and something was really bothering me and i couldn't work out what it is and what it was was i wasn't sore anymore wow. and it was just amazing then i just those days it was just like bang out 50 50k yeah. and it's just yeah, like yeah I wasn't sore, and I thought, "Wow, the body is pretty amazing." Really, it is amazing. Yeah, it's yeah. like the people that run, like say, as a number, fifty marathons in fifty days, and they say pretty much they felt stronger at the end than they did. You know, yeah. I mean, they had those. It's just like I don't really understand how that works. You know, you just think your body just needs so many hours to recover, but it must just go bugger that. Let's just <laughs> find another yeah. way to get through this. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I think that uh, trying to explain that to people, I think I did the sums and it, that one is 66 marathons in 43 days. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's full on, but there's, you know, there's obviously even harder ones. I I've still have an invitation to the Sri Chinmoy 3100, but I'm... Um, no, nah, just delete that email, mate, yeah. Yeah, I don't know <laughs> if I can make it. I've got, yeah, they've given me a... a a certificate here that says i've got an open entry but i wow. think the, the aging process now i'm just not sure i think i can mm. do it I'd, I'd... so what's that one that they give you 50 days to run is that the, is that uh, yeah so basically you, you basically got to do 100k a day for 50 days in a row and oh you've got eight, 18 working hours to do it and it's even harder because it's on an 800 meter 
pretty much concrete loop in the middle of mm. Queens, New York, in the middle of summer, and New York yeah. is hot and humid. So, wow. yeah, if you really, you know, they say, you know, if you get through that one, you, you know, you'll never be the same again. I, I said, I'll just take your word for it. <laughs> yeah, in, in what way? In what yeah, way? So you'll you know, never be the same. So you know, some of the people there in the in the Canberra Three Chinmoy crew, Ratin, and people mm. like that, he's done it twice. You know, I wow. Think, I think um. I think they allowed a little bit longer for them to finish for his okay. first ones. I think they went out to 55 days, but then they've pulled it back a bit. But, yeah, there's some amazing people here, you know, yeah. that are serving you at the cafe and come on the races, and you don't know these people have done amazing things. It's really nice. It's what nice. I love. Like, that. that's, you know, they're very, very strong on, on, on you know, serving people and that, idea yeah, of they're service. not into the fanfare and that's what yeah. you wouldn't know i mean such as talking to you i mean there's a lot lot i've learned um you know yes. i thought you were just the dude at the uh at the end of the race that took down my time <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> yes. yeah that's one of my roles but yeah i think yeah yeah talking you know again with this guy joe last week who i coached and he's a coach of manly runners and we just have these conversations you know literally just saying look our our purpose is to inspire people to have people have these realizations and be better humans and that it's a domino effect. And, you know, we know what our life purpose is here, you know, that's part of it. So that gives you the energy and enthusiasm to contribute however you want. So I can contribute as a runner, as a coach, as a helper, as a timer. I, d I just want to be around humans that are aspiring, you know, to amazing things and just mm. learning learning about themselves so you know it sounds simple but let, it just gives me purpose yeah yeah for sure and as you know if, if if you know they're absorbing that energy and it bounces back to you then you just get this flow and uh and you're yeah. just like two little kids you know what i mean because you just know they're understanding what you're saying which is rare sometimes and and you go wow this person's getting it and that energy comes back to you and then you bounce it back uh, to them and it is it, it is a great feeling for sure it is. Yeah, and I, I just want, yes. yeah, no, continue on. Yeah, I just, yeah, I mean, I guess there, you know, for people that are getting coached, um, you know, it really is nice for them sometimes to let their, their coach know if they've done something special. And I think that goes for life in general. You know, people that yeah. have mentored you or been special in your life, you know, don't wait till they die and it's too late to, mm. to really tell them from the heart of, of mm. how how they've helped you because then that's just such a boost to them you know they they're not doing it out of ego um but it just has that compounding effect and you go oh you know you get this little burst of light and you yeah. just want to do even more yeah 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 starting with your parents if they're still around would be a good start yeah absolutely yeah look everyone yeah. I, I in fact i've i'm on this long service leave break for a few months now and and that's on my checklist here is mm. people in my life that I haven't got back to for ages and and that's exactly it like have the phone calls and just let them yep. know because a lot of them are getting on now and I just go oh, god you know it's it's hard in the modern world to keep up with everyone um mm -hmm. but you know, don't leave it to too late yeah yeah for sure Look, mate, there's one other historical run that you did I, I want to cover, mate. It's the uh, the Spartathlon oh, yes, over yes. there in Greece, mate, 2016. So 246 k's from Athens to Sparta. 
Yes. Um, you know, retracing the steps of uh, Fidipides back then. Um, so tell me about that race, mate. I, I've sort of read about it. Um, it sounds insane. I actually didn't realise you'd done it. So, yeah, please fill me in. Yeah, well, it had always been on the bucket list and I sort of as with the ageing process and that, I thought I probably had, you know, one one more crack at it. And look, I, I've certainly the European the Europeans are obsessed about Spartathlon um, mm-hmm. and look at the feel and the Japanese as well and the mm-hmm. Americans. There haven't okay. been many Aussies that go over, which it's yep. sort of always amuse me i know i think paul every was one of the first to go from australia um and then uh joe blake and a, a few others um so I, yeah, I was sort of curious why aussies hadn't done it but the, just the history of it and and when you when you apply for it i mean the the criteria are actually quite tight and and in fact i i didn't get in uh automatically i got put on the wait list and i was a bit shocked like i thought gee i thought i had a pretty good cv i would have thought i'd get in anyway i was on on the wait list um and at at one stage it looked like i wasn't going to get in at all i think i was down about um in fact i yeah there was a pattern to this i was 41st on the wait list and i just got in right before um, the final close when the people that hadn't accepted came in and it turned out i think i came 41st in the race as well so that's how i can oh, okay how i can there remember yeah. uh, but look um yeah i went with a uh, some aussies um there are a few aussies there um jess baker kerry bremner and um oh, what's his name grant 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 morn um, who's a crazy runner himself. So there are a few Aussies there. But look, the the whole thing, I, I, I'd say it was one of the most memorable races because I actually wasn't in that good shape. Um, and all I wanted to do was just immerse myself in it and just enjoy it, like it, just be part of this big movie. And it, it's just spectacular, you know, starting, starting at the Acropolis and uh, heading off, you know, at the beginning of the morning through the streets of Athens, and then getting out um, along along the cliffs, along the water, and crossing uh, the the Corinth Bridge, and then you know going out past you know ancient ruins, and and just the hard thing about that race is that the the pacing schedule is quite tight for the cutoffs, so. You know, you can't muck around and and take it easy. Uh, mm. White hard races. You know, you need to be. I can't remember the cutoff at 50 miles. You know, 80 80 something k. There's a major checkpoint, and you know you want to be getting there at nine 10 k an hour minimum, uh, or you're out. Um, so, so, and that's just the first third of the race. So then you go out, um, you know, out through the countryside, and then. Uh, what makes it really interesting is you hit the mountains around, you'd start climbing at about, I think about 120k, you climb up and you've got this uh, mountain trail section uh, in the middle of the night at the 100 mile mark and and that's just amazing, there's these sort of steep drop-offs and you're off on this really rocky trail and I, I wore racing flats <laughs> for the whole race, which is okay. where it hurt a lot, I'd huge blisters on all my toes and you go up in the middle of the night uh, descend out of that and then you've got 
basically another 80k of road, a little bit of dirt road, and then basically the side of, of highways, sort of the last 50, 60k that take you into Sparta. And by then, the sun's come up again, and it was super hot through the daytime. You know, it's probably high 20s, low 30s. And you've just, you know, gone right through the night. And then the amazing feeling of dropping down into Sparta and there's, you know, little kids, local kids on their bikes riding alongside you. And then you come in the last few turns and there's crowds of people and the amazing finish there where you have to go up the steps um, up to this statue and, and kiss the feet of the statue. And they put a, you know, a olive crown on your head and they give you a cup of water from the Avrotus River and uh, it's just it's just incredible. I, mm. I I was bawling my eyes out in the last okay. couple of hundred meters. Just that yeah. feeling of, you know, an A to B run like that, and the and the history, and it's so well organised. Um, yeah. Do you have to carry your own supplies for that race, or is there stations along the yeah, line? Yeah, there's or? a lot of stations. So that's okay. actually part of the logistics. Is you can put drop bags out, and I think there's mm. 72, 72 stations. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I, I didn't want to overcomplicate it. I think I, yeah. my plan is I put one every every multiple of six so I could remember it. Hopefully I had enough maths in my head. So I had one at, you know, 6, 12, 18. And then um, obviously when you get up towards the night, you need head torch uh, and possibly warmer clothes and things in the drop bags. But look, it, uh, if if... If I could recommend any one race to anyone in ultras, you know, outside of, I guess, Costa Cozzi for an A to B run, you know, it'd have mm. to be, um, have to be Spartathlon. It's amazing. Yeah. So, yeah. And how long were you, how long does it take to cover that over there? How long were you out there for? Um, I'm just trying to remember. Sorry, my wife's getting the phone. Okay. Um, what did I do? I can't remember. I did, I did 30, 31.55, I think, something like that. Um, so yeah, I, I, I thought, you know, I've got it up here now, 30 hours and 49 minutes. Oh, 30, 49. Yeah. yeah I mean, I remember, yeah. um, I, I thought, you know, at, at best I'd probably, if I had a really good race, I'd run sort of 28 mm. uh, or mm. so, but <clears throat> I did, yeah. I, I did far too much walking. Um, there's mm. a lot more uphill than I thought in the last 80 K this mm. these long, um, gentle sort of climbs on the side of the road in the heat um and in fact i i had to really give smack myself over the head because i was sort of doing the sums and going you know the cutoffs um 36 and i was starting to do the sums and i thought if i can't like get running here I'm, this is going to take forever um yeah. so i had yeah. to sort of force myself to chunk it down and say okay i'm going to shuffle up to the you know next three telephone poles and then walk and you know really that that mechanical to get through and then again right at the end um taking a bucket load of caffeine and and just getting enough of a spark to I think I finished the last 15k really well and passed a lot of people in in that period. So yeah, look, it's just it's it's beautifully organised. It's got incredible history, and just that that feeling of again going across all of Greece and following a historical run. Um, it, it is something special, and and it, 
for the the entry fee and everything it's incredibly good value for money too you get the multiple okay. yeah. accommodation and great food and so yeah it's i'd highly recommend it to anyone <laughs> yeah 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 for sure um yeah it looks like your time on feet's roughly the same as coast of Cosy around that 20 yes. to 38 hours yeah 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 i mean there's more more heat um definitely most yep. years heat's an issue although there's been a few years people been lucky um the year Kerry Bremner went back and did it, so she didn't finish that year, and she went back, and um, with a couple of Aussies, they finished like in I think in the last hour, and they had like a terrible um, weather front come through, and they had pouring rain for most of it, which would have been horrible. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So no, that's the thing. You, you're going to be out exposed to the elements for. Yep day you know day and a half um yep, yep. Yeah, not for the faint-hearted <laughs> definitely not mate no. last year you were um coach team coach of the 24-hour worlds team um over there and uh it was in Albi, france wasn't it yeah. yes yeah had that how was that experience and what did you sort of take away from that you know like personally um oh, well firstly it was nice that the australian ultra runners uh did an experiment and finally put forward money that would actually pay for the coach to go over there. Okay. Um, you know, but most of us that have represented Oz in in 24 hour and stuff, we know that mostly we're going to be self-funding. Uh, we do get some stipends, uh, performance-based payments. If we've broken 240, you know, you get a certain amount of money towards travel. But um, so it was nice because I'd already given a, a few um, – training camps to the 24-hour team in the previous years um, but I'd never sort of been formally acknowledged as, as a coach so that that was just a I guess a great recognition and again we had a fantastic training camp down at Coburg in Melbourne we got the whole team there and you know really got some team bonding and spirit going and and because that really makes a big difference at the world you know real you know it's it's it is a buzz representing australia but when you mm. really know and love everyone in the team then that's what actually brings the extra performances um you know there's that sort of tension between racing as an individual and racing for the for the team awards but sure. this team i i just i just loved how at that training camp you know, everyone got to know each other and supported each other and started sharing ideas. And um, I remember at the beginning of that that workshop actually just asking people, I think the first questions is, you know, why do you, why are you here? You know, what does it mean to you? And, and you know, tell me something about yourself um, that no one knows about. And, and all these amazing backgrounds came out. And what struck me was that all these people were super busy people with jobs and some people like six kids in the family and yet were out there doing, you know, 100 mile, 200k weeks. Like this is an amazing committed group of people. Yeah and, yeah. and what they heard about each other, they said, oh, I didn't know that. And so there's just that realisation again, like we're just a bunch of humans here trying to do something amazing. And once you can gain the the energy and the respect and understand that everyone else is doing is have to sacrifice a lot to do it then that sort of has a quantum effect and i think that 
really fed over to when we got to France. That you know the team spirit was fantastic, and um, look, you know some of the performances, people, um, some of them had actually got quite hot during the day, and some people maybe paced a bit hard and didn't get what they wanted. But we had you know a few spectacular performances, and we also, I know we. We really made our our mark on the world. Like I, I had some people comment to me, said you've got such a beautiful team of people, you mm. know, from other countries, saying they're just so they're smiling and happy, and you know, to me that was one of the you know great, I guess, um, bits of feedback you can get when other countries are saying, oh look at the Aussies, you know, aren't they a really cool bunch of people and they're friendly and yep. they support each other. Um, yeah. So yeah, that that I mean, there's a lot of things I could say about the whole experience, but I think that yeah. these people really did us proud yeah. as as people and as runners, and that you know a lot of them made friends with you know famous people like Camille uh, and others, like that just you know made friendships uh, with runners all around the world. Um, yeah. So it's more than more than just you know competing at the worlds. It's it's understanding the world now is actually quite a small place and, and we're all part of the big soup. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, is 24-hour worlds, is that annually or? Uh, no, I think I think for a while it was annual. I think then it moved to every two years. And then a yeah. few times what's difficult is the countries, it's a bit like people bidding for the Olympics. Yeah, There's, okay committee and and they really need to get some serious sponsor funding to be able to make yeah. it happen because there's expectations that i mean it'd be almost impossible to do in australia it was one of my fantasies to make a bid but um the problem is you know the tr just the travel travel uh, bonds that we'd have to be able to supply for a lot of people coming from around the world that you'd need yeah. a, you'd need a million dollar budget you know something yeah. You know, which is just crazy. So yeah. you can find uh, Richard Branson or someone to get excited about it. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's going to be hard to make it happen. Mm. But it's not mm. impossible. Someone may do it. Someone that's right into marketing and can really get someone excited about it. Um, but, you know, I think that's one of the issues, trying to market market this sort of running as uh, yeah. be difficult. Yeah. Well, it's exciting if it goes ahead with this COVID thing with the, uh, well, cross-country championships in Bathurst. Yes, that's, uh, yes. That's fantastic. That's, that's big for, for Australia, for sure. Yeah, look, I think anyone will be thankful for any championship coming up in that's right. the yeah. current environment. And, and, of course, you know, you know as, as a coach, the hard thing now is how do people stay motivated? You know, mm. those those A athletes, you know, they, they are really goal-seeking, so... It's a real challenge at the moment to have things for them to sort of focus on in between. But thankfully, there's a, still a few events going on here and there yeah. to get race in, um, and that's you know that's something we've been certainly lucky in the ACT here to have some events, and I hope it doesn't change. But um, yeah, I just heard yesterday. I think the YMCA half is canned now, which I was going to do timing. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I hadn't heard that one either. Yeah. Yeah, that had been moved 
um, to October, yeah. I think. So, yeah, I mean, it's very hard for the race organisers in all this, Certainly. you know, looking at risk management and yep. costs and everything. So, yeah, yep. let's just be thankful for any race we can do. Yeah, for sure, for sure, definitely. It's uh, it's interesting times. Mate, I'm going to move on to something different, skydiving, mate. Apparently you can <laughs> a plane more than twice. Tell me about that. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, don't, yeah, don't get me started on that. Look, I started around uni. Um, it actually started with meeting a girl at a party and she told me later that week that she'd registered us for skydiving, which I didn't remember uh, from the night. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, those days it was um, basically old, the big old military canopies and it was out at Picton, Wilton, when you drive into Sydney yep. there, you yep. see the skydiving yep. centre. And I did a couple that first weekend and it scared the hell out of me and then I didn't do it again for about four or five months and then my girlfriend there she had actually gone out and and got into it a bit and she said come on you'll like it and then I actually had a couple of good static line jumps that was like the old war movies where Mm. as you fall away from the plane the chute opens and I actually had my eyes open and and could feel the acceleration and stuff and it was actually nice so then i got into it um and then within a few years started doing competition so formation skydiving with four person teams and you've got a certain amount of time to do these formations um that's judged and i just got right into it i I, so over 20 years i did uh almost 900 jumps Uh, i jumped jumped in the u.s uh, in Australia, few few other countries, but eventually, um, yeah, I guess just family and the running stuff became too strong. I did jumps in Canberra here uh, into the Mint Oval. I did a jump into some um, oh, Lanyon, Lanyon uh, Football Club kids Christmas party. Dressed, okay, as Ru- yeah. dressed as Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That was, yeah. uh, that was a memorable jump. Um, sure. Where we survived the jump, but we almost got killed by the parents of the kids when we ran out of lolly bags in the back of the trailer. <laughs> so that was, yeah. that was uh, yeah, that was insightful. But look, I, I again, I think I think it showed me in my life I've been interested in in alternative experiences, and obviously mm. um, that's you know why I even got into studying pharmacology and that you know certainly at uni times was interested in altered states yeah um so but yeah just this you know putting yourself in elements that are very different um and so Mm. you know you i i can't say i was never not scared in fact i said the day i'm not scared i'll quit the sport so Mm. there's always some adrenaline there but the the feeling of basically aerial gymnastics and this feeling of speed you know to stand on your head and do 330 kilometres an hour pointing straight down and mm-hmm. sprinkling through cumulus clouds and things. I've just got memories there that get me, you know, I can play back in my head and uh, wonderful memories. But I think, you know, as, as part of the whole picture of me, it just showed me that I could take something that was a fear and turn it into something that was enjoyable and exciting. Um, yeah. And I think for everyone, you know, it's 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 the same thing. I'm not saying everyone should do it because it is potentially fatal every jump. 
and I certainly had a you know quite quite a lot of um, quite close close calls so I obviously have been kept here for a good reason <laughs> yeah I was, I was going to ask I didn't know whether I should because it's, it's it's a negative nature but you know after 900 and so jumps there must have been something that didn't go right yeah, yeah so you know there were I had yeah. I only had two reserve rides in 900 jumps. Um, one of them was pretty early on when I had about 50-something jumps and I was silly enough to have bought cheap second-hand gear. <laughs> and, oh, nice. I'll feed you for 10 bucks. Yeah, uh, and, yeah, it probably wasn't a good idea. It uh, opened up with some terrible twists and suddenly I realised, oh, this is the time to remember all those drills and yeah. got under a reserve um, early on and then... Uh, couple of hundred jumps later actually had a collision with someone in free fall um, in a in one of these group jumps and it had knocked the ripcord out of a holder and when I went to pull the ripcord at um, the right time it wasn't there and I couldn't find it so I basically had to open the reserve and I was you know probably then you know sort of eight seconds till impact so uh, some of those pretty fun but I mean, yeah. for skydivers, you know, I guess at some stage you're going to come in up to those sorts of situations. And I'd also been in an aircraft whose engine burnt out, but of course we had parachutes on, so it's only the pilot that had to worry. Oh, wow. And uh, probably another one, we had uh, uh, one of our um, jumpers, his chute actually started opening down the side of the plane and we we're only at a 1,000 feet. And I thought we're all going to go in then, but thankfully... We managed to pull his chute back in and um, mm. um, repack it in the plane and still did the jump. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, hopefully he just went and landed and went and No, no, the pilot actually <laughs> was shouting mayday and everything. And I actually, it was one of those times when, you know, talk about being selfish, I, I'd sort of looked and I thought there's, you know, barely time if I just dived out now and let him get wrapped around the tail and the other people on the team just get out. You know, probably the chute would break the tail off and everyone would die and you'd survive. But it was an interesting situation to be in. But, you know, mm. a bunch of us were fast enough to spot this pilot chute going down the side of the fuselage and we jammed him in the door and we were absolutely freaking out. Mm. And, uh, yeah, that was pretty pretty solid moment. <laughs> yeah, pretty scary. But, yeah, I've only done it once. It was over the Bells Beach surfing competition down there at uh, Torquay um, back in 2006, and it was. I really, you know, when you go for your first jump, you don't you don't know what's going to happen, but it was an absolute rush. And I always say, you know, you're not telling people to go and jump out of a plane in case something happens. But I just, I did say, I explained it in the sense that it's it's a feeling that you um, I don't know if you can get out of anything else, and uh, uh-huh. I think your body just goes what the hell's going on and once you get over that fear then it just becomes the most incredible feeling that's for sure yeah it's not just the feeling of to me it also i I guess i got to sort of mix with you know it was a real diverse group of people that go along there and and um yeah i think it, it sort of broadened my perspective i'd probably been spending time with too many sort of academic types and there are a lot mm. of crazy um soul to the earth and completely insane people and i yeah, I had a, a really fun time around then, sort of learning. And, and again, just like with running, we, we're all there to jump and to we shared that experience. And, um, uh, yeah, some really amazing bonds made and just sharing the experience of what 
the scenery and the speed and mm. that you feel and and all of that um very very potent mix you know you finish finish a day's jumping and go out for a drink and a meal and you just it's just like you know the best drug ever yeah <laughs> just, yeah, yeah it's 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 of course you've sort of survived and all that adrenaline but you know, yeah, I, I enjoyed the intellectual side of the competition stuff because they're trying to perform, you know, in a team with other people under high pressure. You know, it was a re- that's where again the mental stuff came in, and even that ability to somehow relax your body when you know when you're under so much um, pressure was a really interesting insight for me, and I enjoyed yeah. that a lot. Yeah, no, for sure. All right, mate. Um, we're gonna wrap this up. Back to your running, though. Where where's Martin going with your run? I mean, I, I saw on Strava the other day you was out for a lazy sixty-three k <laughs> for the yes. day through the Brindle Mountains, uh, a run that you've done many a time. So you're still still moving. Um, uh, so yeah, what, what's happening pretty, there? Yeah, look, I've I've had injuries on and off last few years. Probably some of it's just <clears throat> done through you know stress from work and stuff. And now that I'm getting closer to 60 i'm sort of making a transition plan and you know because i've got lots of stuff i want to do creative stuff with you know some writing and other things um and look you know there's a book a book i've got by the guy bobby mcgee he was a south african um running coach and he talked about the, the sort of four stages of running of stage one you're an athlete and then stage two, you're a warrior, and then stage three, you're the elder statesman, and the and the final stage is the spirit runner. So mm. I think I'm sort of somewhere between the elder statesman and the spirit runner. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Look, I, I I haven't given up on having on racing at all, but I, yeah. I I'm hoping I can. I, I I am suffering from not doing enough strength work. And yep. I somehow I got away with it for 15 years. Um, now, you know, a lot of, you know, glute activation and posterior chain stuff, calves. And so, you know, I've really gone right back to str- scratch. And, and mm. you know, my aim is just to run, be running for life. But, yeah, I see it from a different perspective. I'm getting a lot more joy just going in a race and knowing I'm not going to race such a great time, but just watching watching what's going on that mindfulness and then just enjoying just being out there as part of it yeah um you know it's it is a different perspective and then you know i'm contributing by getting into the coaching and timing so you know it's not it's not about me anymore <laughs> yeah yeah you know, but I, i'm i'm probably enjoying it you know more than ever it's just the yeah the injury stuff is a bit annoying and i'm um, certainly my gait it's not that great, but, you know, I am working on it. And um, with, um, you know, Cherie, um, Yaps Elevate Group and others um, doing some of the strength work. And, uh, mm. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping I can have a bit of a comeback, but I'm not sure what, what I'll aim to do, but it certainly won't yeah. anything. No, yeah. Nothing too crazy. Maybe you the line for your 21st uh, six-foot track next year. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Look, yeah. it's getting harder year but yeah that's it i think focusing on the shorter races yeah um, yeah like i think at the moment I, I think i said if i couldn't bust 20 minutes for 5k i'd retire and that's pretty much what's happened but yeah, okay. i got i got close again 
last year and got injured again. But yeah, if I can if I can be getting around sort of twenty minute five k pace and fitness, then yeah. you know, the endurance stuff is easy for me. I you know even this weekend I, I basically was injured, but I wanted to take Cherie and Andrew out in my favourite parts of the Brindies. And we went super slow, you know, what we did 8K an hour and we just jogged and walked, but it was just beautiful. And mm. it was really, you know, I'm trying to get Cherie to do the 100K solo three, three Chinmoy race and she's sort of having doubts. And I said, look, six weeks out, let's go and do 60K in the mountains. Yeah. And then in a few weeks, go and do the six-hour row gain out in Cowan Forest and the rest of the time just do your normal stuff and you'll be yeah. fine. So, is is it high chance that 100k will go ahead? Uh, it's it's there's a lot of issues at the moment. Um, okay. I just talked to Prachar yesterday because um, we're setting up for the off-road duathlon this weekend. But there's yeah, we've had um, some unusual requests now from some of the authorities about not going under Hindmarsh Drive and having to detour down you know near Mugger Lane and um, not being allowed to go through um, initially we had things from the equestrian people about going through the horse paddocks at Mount Arrowing and suddenly all these new things are coming okay. up so we're trying to work them out and yep. um, okay we always help try to get people like Shane Rattenbury to use political yep. clout to <laughs> tell yep. people that we know what we're doing and everything will be fine <laughs> Sure. Yeah. yeah, but I hopefully it'll be on because I know there's um, certainly a lot of solos and relay teams, and it's just a great way to showcase this amazing city. Mm, mm. No, definitely, definitely, mate. Thank you so much, Martin, for, oh, for well. sharing that, mate. It's been very enjoyable. Um, yeah, really, really thankful. I'm pretty sure myself and the listeners got a lot out of that. Um, like I said, I think we could we could have part two, part three, part four with you, <laughs> mate. But um, I'm very happy with that, mate. Yeah, thanks, thanks very much. Look, it's been a great pleasure, and uh, I hope hope someone gets something out of some of the gobbledygook that I spoke about. But yeah, it's I think the themes the themes come back th- through all the stories, and and we actually have them all in common. Um, and if we just, you know, look after each other and um, everyone just, you know, keep being curious and open and accepting what's going on, then there's, you know, we're, we're pretty spoiled here, particularly in the ACT. We're, it's like a huge playground and um, uh, people are welcome any time to contact me, you know, and have a chat. And um, if they're really interested in doing the super long stuff, then, um, yeah, I'm happy to send them a questionnaire and we'll see if we can do something for them yeah fantastic mate i'll um i'll whack some uh, some links uh for your listeners in, in the show descriptions below yeah, so i still can... don't have a website i mean that's how low key i am i'll get ah, it's all right they'll find you mate yeah, yeah they'll pretty, find pretty easy these days mate they'll find you um all right thank you so much martin cheers thanks so much Aston. Right. see, see you, you mate. bye, bye.